Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hey, everybody. Uh, We've got a great one today, you know, for a change. I'm going to start with my thoughts about the first January 6th hearing on on Thursday night, and then we're going to revisit immigration with our friend Ali Narani, former director of the National Immigration Forum, and we'll be talking about our attempt to replace white voters with immigrants of color who vote reliably with Democrats. Okay, that was meant ironically uh, for any nutcases tuning in for the first time uh, to the Al Franken podcast. So uh, last night's hearing, I'm uh, recording this on Friday, June 10th, the morning following the first hearing, carried on all networks except the Fox News Channel, which uh, reran the Benghazi hearings. So I, I love Cheney. Liz, Liz uh, Cheney. I thought it was all over after her presentation. We heard uh, that Trump was told repeatedly by the attorney general, Bill Barr, that the idea that Trump won was bullshit. That's uh, uh, Barr's words, not mine. Trump was told the same by uh, his Justice Department, uh, by his White House counsel, by top campaign staff, you lost. There's no there there. You lost. <laughs> okay. Now, you remember at uh, 3 a.m. The, the next morning, I guess, or that that night, Trump told his supporters that the election uh, was being stolen. The election that he won, he said, in a landslide. And he keeps saying that. He's continued to say he won in a landslide. To this day. Now, here's something I like to remind people. In 2016, Trump won the election because he won the Electoral College. But Hillary got three million more votes uh, than Trump. But Trump wasn't satisfied. He had to say that he won the popular vote. So as president, he appointed a commission the Kobach Commission, headed by this right-wing Secretary of State from Kansas. And this commission found nothing. They had to disband the commission. I bring that up because he always does this. He just always lies. He has to be prosecuted. His only defense, his only defense can be insanity. He was told over and over again that he lost in trials that were presided over by Trump-appointed judges. His lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, had his license to practice law in New York suspended. This is what those who adjudicated that said. There is evidence of continuing misconduct 
The underlying offense is incredibly serious. The uncontroverted misconduct in itself will likely result in substantial permanent misconduct. (laughs) I mean, Trump is a crook. And the only ones who stuck with him are crooks. Now, perhaps the most dramatic part of the hearing was the testimony of Capitol Policewoman Caroline Edwards and the footage of the four-hour assault on the Capitol. Now, I know the Capitol Police. I, I would see them every day. They work security at the Capitol, at the office buildings. I, I was in the Hart Building. Everyone had to go through the metal detectors, except the senators, and if I would arrive at nine in the morning, I would always, there'd be this long line and I'd always just snake through going because I didn't have to go through it. I'd think through the line and I'd go like, more important than you, more important than you, more important than you. And I just love the Capitol Police. <laughs> they were great. Their job was never to fight a four-hour battle with a mob armed with all this crap and bear spray and clubs and flagpoles. This was a war. And uh, what they did was amazing and saved the country and saved the country. But what Officer Edwards described, four hours of combat, that just underscored the crime Donald Trump committed that day. Waiting 187 minutes to put out a video to tell his people to leave. And in the meantime, these Capitol policemen and women suffered traumatic brain injury, severed fingers, eyes gouged out, fractured spines, bear spray in their face, hand-to-hand combat. And what statement did Trump release? Quote, these are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long. So go home with love and in peace. Remember this day forever. Okay. Merrick Garland, you got to prosecute this guy. We all know that, and um, I'm looking forward to all the rest of these hearings. Okay, let's uh, turn to uh, Ali Narani. Uh, he's our go-to guy on on immigration. This is uh, truly, truly a great one. You know, finally. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. (laughs) That That means I would also like the soup. 
and that way I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ali, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. How are you? Uh, I'm pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, you know, everything around uh, the country and the world is looking so good. I'm just very optimistic. <laughs> a, a lot of optimism out there in the air these, these days, a lot. Yeah, well, there are a few uh, problems, and you're my go-to on, on immigration. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, the, uh, the border, great replacement theory, because uh, these right-wingers like Tucker Carlson are saying that immigration is a plot by Democrats to replace white voters with immigrants of color who will reliably vote for Democrats and this uh, shooter in, in Buffalo killed 10 people because he had bought into that. There's uh, immigration from uh, Ukraine and Afghanistan. Uh, there's DACA. Well, let's start with the border. I mean, there's a, a lot happening there. Um, and, you know, to, to kind of start us there, you remember in March of 2020, as COVID-19 was really settling over the country, the Trump administration utilized Title 42, which is about a 100-year-old policy out of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention that, in essence, allows the federal government to close the borders. And the Biden administration has kept Title 42 in place for quite a while. They've been looking to lift it. But in essence, it is a public health restriction, uh, not a border enforcement restriction. And it has become kind of the center of quite a bit of debate and I think will be a big issue as we go into the midterm elections. So basically, um, people come in and they're seeking asylum, even if, you know, they're determined to have legitimate asylum issues, but they're sent back to Mexico? Correct. So for under Title 42, People are not detained and deported, they are expelled. And that's a really important difference because what it means is that, let's just say I'm coming from Honduras to ask for asylum in the United States. You know, pay a cartel over $10,000 because there's no other way for me to get to the United States border. The cartels are making billions of dollars as a result. But the cartels get me to, let's say, Ciudad Juarez, just over the border from El Paso. And they say, okay, cross over that bridge and go to that border patrol agent or cross the river and go to that border patrol agent and ask for asylum. And what happens then is that a, the border patrol agent more or less says, okay, you're here under title 42. I'm not going to ask you any questions. I'm not going to put you into a process, particularly if you are a single adult male, I'm going to expel you 
back to Mexico. That means that, again, I'm not put into the system. And importantly, what that also means is that there's no legal consequence for my action. So the driver of this is the cartels who, in essence, are selling a package of three tries for the price of one. So for that $10,000 or more, I'm allowed three attempts to cross the border and be able to get into the silent process order to cross the border and elude border patrol. That's a big reason why we're seeing such high apprehension numbers because of the rates of recidivism. Anywhere between 20 and 40% of apprehensions per month are people who have tried previously. Uh, So Title 42 is not enforcement. It's uh, really just an expulsion policy that is is not actually solving a problem. Okay, so your your first example in this scenario is that the cartel is telling you to walk across the bridge and surrender yourself. And if that happens, uh, you only have two more times. And so the second time, you're not going to want to do that and get so you're going to do a more dangerous thing. And the third time, you're going to do an even more dangerous attempt to get in is is help me understand that is that right right so what happens is that if the person is not successful the first time in order to in terms of getting into the u.s or beginning the asylum process is that the cartels put them into increasingly dangerous situations they are taken to another part along the border they're oftentimes they lose their belongings because somebody else will kind of kidnap them and hold them for ransom so It's glib to say three for one, but those are three very dangerous attempts as part of a very dangerous journey to begin with that at the end of the day, only the cartels are profiting from. And what this does also is that Customs and Border Protection, their limited valuable law enforcement resources are taken away from, for example, stopping or preventing the trafficking or smuggling of drugs across the border and to processing migrants who have no other way to pursue opportunities here in the U.S. Yeah, uh, let's talk about the disease part. The original rationale for Title 42 is that these people are bringing in COVID, but they're also saying COVID is a hoax. You, you You don't have to wear a mask. I mean, the contradictions, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, It's so obvious it's sad. Um, And one of my biggest concerns about COVID beyond the 1 million people who've lost their lives and all their families whose lives have been upended as a result is that this would be a pandemic that would be seen a pandemic of poor people. That is being, I think, carried out in the most awful way, both politically and in the treatment of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border by just the, the deeply false assumption that, you know, COVID only exists at the U.S.-Mexico border among uh, migrants. Let's say you said, well, you know what? Let's lift 42, Title 42, and let's bring people in. Is there any way to do this in a way that that works, it's, you know, keep people separate from each other, not crowd them? I mean, has, has that been thought through and are we going to do that and well you remember i mean we put the trump administration put title 42 in place long before their rapid tests long before their vaccines now you know it is possible to get an initial read as we all know on a rapid test within 15 minutes to get a sense of whether or not you're positive and then even pcr tests are coming back you know within 30 minutes so the technology the science is there to 
screen people and test people when they present at the border. Obviously, the vaccines are now in place. So, you know, we have long believed that DHS needs to partner with the State Department and needs to partner with the Mexican government to make sure that uh, there is ample access to vaccines along the U.S.-Mexico border for the health, both of the communities that live there, but also the communities that are migrating through uh, northern Mexico. The science exists now. And so it's an, yet another reason why, you know, Title 42 from a public health perspective no longer applies. Yeah. And it's also uh, people from Mexico cross the border legally every day. So presumably uh, some of them could have COVID. Exactly. I mean, COVID-19 has never asked, you know, for your passport or your citizenship papers. Even at the height of the pandemic, you know, the airports were open and you you still had flights coming from Mexico City into the U.S. But if you had to cross the border by foot or on land uh, and you weren't a U.S. citizen or legal permanent resident, you were out of luck. There's deep inconsistencies in the way that we have been addressing this, the problem and the challenge of immigration to the U.S.-Mexico border. Now, we need immigrants. When, you know, in Minnesota, we have a very large population, Latino population, who work in the agriculture sector. And I'm not talking about, there are some seasonal workers, but there are people who are citizens and who came there and there are, they've been in Minnesota for a long time. But there's still needed more. And we have, we actually have jobs we can't fill because there's no one to fill them in in parts of Minnesota, including a lot of mi- southern Minnesota. And that is the case around the country right now. So is, is this, this is obviously being demagogued uh, every day and very often on Fox um, and very often by the MAGA people. How do we fight that? Well, I think what we need to do is really localize the examples of where immigrants and refugees are a net asset to the country. And because, you know, we can talk about the national data across pretty much any sector, and it becomes really clear that there is a labor shortage. But whether it's, you know, the community in Minnesota that you were talking about, you know, my wife and I were in rural Pennsylvania about a month ago, and, you know, we're at a local diner getting breakfast, you know, those paper placemats that have different business ads. I counted it up and I would say about half of the 25 ads on that kind of paper placemat were all help wanted ads from construction, from agriculture to services. So I think what we have to do is really think through what are the local examples that resonate with people of saying or leading them to see that immigration is good for them. It's good for their families. But most importantly, in many ways, it is good for the economic growth and vitality of their communities. Because there are just far too many cities and towns, particularly in rural parts of the country, that are being hollowed out from a population perspective, because, you know, the far right, frankly, has been able to demagogue immigration and, you know, shut off the flow of talent that we need. And and we have a democratic administration. Uh, how, what what has the Biden record been on this? I think that the Biden White House has, you know, after the first kind of flurry of executive orders after inauguration, by and large, the White House has managed immigration from a very defensive posture. You know, the president 
doesn't like talking about immigration. His close advisors always seem to, to kind of stray away from it and kind of approach it from a very reactionary perspective. And, you know, seen news reports over the last couple of months that kind of highlight the, the debate within the White House of kind of how to manage and secure the border. I think that the president has a unique capability of helping Americans see the value of immigration, again, to themselves and to their families. Um, but that means that the administration, you know, yes, they will pay a price on the left by saying we need a secure border. But there, I believe, are votes to get from a purely politically crass perspective on the in the center and on even on the center right, because there are a large number of by and large, suburban voters who moved from Republicans to Democrats in both 2018 and 2020 because of the way that the Trump administration treated immigrants. And I think that in the heinous and awful and vicious rhetoric coming from the far right around the Great Replacement Theory, there is an opening again to say that we as a nation are not afraid of diversity. We value diverse communities because they are to our economic benefit and our social benefit as a country. But that's a message that needs to come from the president. I've done some reading and it, and it turns out that a large percentage of Americans come from immigrants. This is correct. <laughs> I just don't, you know, I don't get it when, when, I mean, my, all of my grandparents came here around the turn of the century, the last century. You know, there was some anti-Semitism and, and of course, <laughs> there's still some. Uh, still some yes. But, yes. Um, but, you know, that went away. I mean, to a great degree, that's, we've thrived here in this country and uh, I don't see any reason <laughs> why that shouldn't be the same story, except uh, is, is it just... I mean, they came over, they didn't speak English, right? They came to America, and we're a unique country. We're a country of immigrants. So Doris Meisner, who uh, during the Clinton administration ran Immigration and Naturalization Services, and now she's at the Migration Policy Institute. She's kind of one of the leading experts uh, in the field. She told me a few years back, to paraphrase, Americans have a very kind of romantic notion of immigration when they talk about their families, but they have a deep level of anxiety and concern when they think about and talk about immigration today. And what we have found, what I found over the years is that, you know, people, they come to, to love the Maria or the Muhammad that they know, whether it's the person they go to church with, their kids, good friends, or their neighbors. But they still remain afraid of the Maria or the Muhammad that they don't know. And um, in fact, in 2017, there was this book written by Eric Kaufman from Oxford University called White Shift. And he ran a number of studies and also looked at other data. And he found that people's perception of immigration, it overpowered their experience of immigration at a very local level. And I would argue, it, it take it even one step further, that their experience of immigration in their church or in their community is overpowered by the perception of migration at a global level. Because again, you have kind of the far right who is saying immigration is out of control or quote being invaded and that it, it taps into a fear that people have. And we need to, to help people understand that that Maria or Muhammad that they know and love is not very different from the one that they don't know, but that they see on TV. But they have used fear uh, and, you know, whipped up this animosity and hatred 
toward immigrants in a way that has been quite effective. It really has. And, um, you know, my, my colleagues at the forum, they put to, have put together some great resources um, to look at, you know, where great replacement theory has come from. And, you know, it goes back to, you know, 1973, and a French author wrote a novel, uh, The Camp of the Saints, that was a, a tale about the destruction of white Western society at the hands of mass immigration. And then I wrote about it in a recent book in 2013, how Breitbart News really kind of, if you will, modernized the weaponization of migration around the Syrian refugee crisis. Over time, what happens is that these, whether it's novels or kind of fringe elements, they're then picked up by Fox News, Tucker Carlson, Donald Trump. And then we end up in the situation where we are now, where it is part of the everyday discussion, not just in political news, but, you know, really around, you know, so many kitchen tables across the country. There was a recent AP poll that found that three in 10 Americans overall agreed with the idea that intentional replacement was occurring or that native born Americans were losing influence. So this strategy by the far right has been very effective, but I still think that there is a debate that's happening among conservative Americans and we have to provide ways of, of providing people a different place to go. Uh, how, how much is this rhetoric that we're hearing, a lot of it is from Fox News and some other sources and some certainly some online sources. How much is that really, is that, do you think that's responsible for these incidents that we're seeing that we saw in New Zealand? I mean, that's maybe not Fox News, but that we just saw in Buffalo, obviously, mm-hmm. saw in El Paso. I, I think direct tie, I think. Yeah, there's a pretty clear linkage. The August 2019 massacre of over 20 Latinos in El Paso, the manifesto that that killer wrote mimicked what Donald Trump was saying from, you know, the presidential podium nine months before. You know, the killer in Buffalo, again, using this language of invasion. This is the thing is that Republicans, with the exception of, you know, Liz Cheney and maybe a few others, not only are they kind of ignoring, you know, what these individuals are saying, but they're, they're not even uh, refuting it. And they just create this space where, you know, you have Cheney and Kinzinger and a few others who are kind of lonely voices among Republicans saying, you know what, Grand Old Party is uh, fomenting white nationalism. When I was in the Senate in 2013, we passed a path to citizenship, right, for mm-hmm. millions and millions of, of immigrants in a very bipartisan way. I think it got 68 votes. And then the House never took it up. And you've written about that. And we've talked about that. Are there still Republicans in the Senate today that are making any attempt, like people like John Cornyn or anybody like that, that, that are just on this at all or... <laughs> so over the last few months, and even going back to last year, so let me start last kind of summer, um, Senator Durbin, from, a Democrat from Illinois, started pulling together some bipartisan conversations that included Republicans like uh, Tom Tillis from uh, North Carolina, uh, North Carolina yeah. and others. Um, but then Cornyn and then Senator Sinema from Arizona, they actually put together a bipartisan border security legislative package last fall that was great because it improved processing it moved resources to the border. They managed to come up with something that didn't cross a red line on the left or the right. More recently, you have those senators uh, plus, you know, Warner Coons on the Democratic side, 
Hoven, Rounds, Collins, King, Murkowski, Collins and Murkowski, Republicans, King of the Independent, I'm sorry, all beginning to say both publicly, but even privately, okay, let's figure out what we can do here. Because I mean, this is the, the important part of uh, why we need immigration reform done this year to some level is because next year very well we could see the supreme court eliminate the daca program so if republicans win the house and the senate and or the senate this fall and all of a sudden you know they're stuck with you know a daca program being rescinded by uh, the supreme court you know what does a speaker mccarthy do what does a leader mcconnell do they are in a political corner that they can get themselves out of now as opposed to trying to, to squirm out of it next year. On, on what grounds is uh, the Supreme Court get a DACA? What's, what's the argument there? So it's a combination of the case being made is that uh, I think it's like roughly 15 Republican states that have filed a lawsuit in South District Court that will eventually make it to the Fifth Circuit and then to the Supreme Court. The grounds are around the rulemaking process itself, whether or not the administration followed the Administrative Procedures Act, costs to the states in terms of implementation of DACA, and then most importantly, the core of the case is that DACA itself goes beyond the authority granted in the INA, the Immigration and Nation Naturalization Act. Legal minds, much, much smarter than mine, are worried that a, the court will in South District and South Texas will halt the program that will be upheld by the Fifth Circuit. And then the Supreme Court, given the makeup of it, people are, are feel that if the case makes it to the Supreme Court, that DACA will be struck by the Supreme Court itself. Okay. And that's just based on, I mean, those are all constitutional legal arguments, which is what's supposed to come before the court, but it seems to be sort of based on, we don't want immigrants, we don't want to, these are kids who came here when, you know, it, it wasn't their idea. Uh, their parents bought them, presumably. They've grown up in the United States. I, mean, I remember the first time um, I went to Walter Reed, I think I've told you about this. Mm -hmm. um, I was very nervous. Uh, I, I was doing USO tours and I was you know, asked if I w was interested in going to Walter Reed to kind of, I don't know, cheer up <laughs> the wounded vets there. And I went, I don't know how to, do, uh, I was very nervous, but I went. Actually, the first guy I met had one leg missing uh, above his knee and he was standing on some crutches. And I said to him, oh, what happened to you? And he said, you know, I came in here for a vasectomy. And so <laughs> he cheered me up. And then... Yeah. The next guy, I went into his room, then, you know, and they check when you're going to someone's room, if they want to see you. And I go in there and there's a guy who's missing both legs and he is grinning ear to ear and his father is there grinning ear to ear and he'd just become a citizen and he lost <laughs> both legs yeah. for our country and... He wasn't a citizen when he was doing it, you know? Yeah. I don't get it. Uh, it's just, I, and is there another, if this Supreme Court strikes it down, is there a way to do it? What, what's the way to, to restore DACA? Is it legislation? Is it legislation. So I think that 
there is not only a political incentive for both parties to find some sort of a compromise you know this year this congress around dreamers farm workers others but i also think that there is you know at some point we as a country have got to stop torturing these young people with kind of such incredible instability in their lives uh, so that you know quite frankly they can't plan out you know with any sort of confidence what their lives are going to look like beyond really two years, uh, because that's as long as their DACA protections last. I think we all saw this over the course of COVID-19, those DACA recipients who were nurses, who were farm workers, who were National Guard members, who played such a critical role in helping us respond and recover to COVID. And, you know, we have, I think as a nation, have forgotten about those contributions so, so quickly. Yeah. So you're saying this year, and of course, this is an election year as well, but you, you feel that there is some impetus within in Congress to do that? I, I'm skeptical, sorry to say. Uh, you know, I'm an immigration advocate. You have, you have to be. You have to be optimistic, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, we're going to take a, uh, a pessimistic break, and we'll be right back with Ali Narani. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom terms apply. Talk to me about Greg Abbott. Yeah, oh yes. Tell me the stuff he's doing in Texas, which is pretty extraordinary. So Greg Abbott is, you know, for a long time, he presented himself as a fairly, I think, moderate Republican on immigration, or at least not one who was willing to demagogue. Uh, I'm 99% sure his wife is Mexican-American has always enjoyed broad support from the the Mexican-American population in Texas. For the longest time, he was never seen as a demagogue on immigration. He's up for re-election this year, and he was very worried about attacks from the right wing. So he has taken upon himself to do a few things. Number one, he has offered bus rides to migrants who were able to enter the United States and begin the asylum process to get to the Washington, D.C., uh, and what happened as a result is that people were thrilled. They were like, okay, I've got family in Washington, D.C., and you're, you're going to give me a free bus ride. So that one kind of backfired on him. Before that, he started to deploy state troopers to the border, Texas state troopers uh, to the border to make a big show of force. He was, you know, lined up hundreds of state trooper automobiles as kind of a steel curtain. He has really tried to kind of do everything he could to, you know, take the symbols of enforcement and use them to his political gain. You know, deploy the National Guard, 
In fact, I mean, it's terrible. It's a tragedy. But there were a number of National Guardsmen who were just so despondent about, in essence, being stranded on the border with no clear purpose or sense of mission that, you know, a couple of them committed suicide uh, late last year. So Greg Abbott, I think, has done everything that he can to weaponize and demagogue immigration to the harm of the Texas taxpayer. It's cost hundreds of millions of dollars. It's led to some incredibly tragic incidents among the National Guardsmen who are at the border. And at the end of the day, has done really nothing to improve the security of the U.S.-Mexico border. We have all these refugees coming out of Ukraine, uh, but we have them coming out of Afghanistan as well. Is there any difference in the way that, that we're treating Afghan refugees and Ukrainian refugees? So let's go back to last spring um, when the Biden administration first announced the the president announced the intent intention intent to evacuate Afghanistan. And at that point, uh, the special immigrant visa program was saddled with a backlog of about I believe about forty or fifty thousand applications. The SIV program, special immigrant visa program, is extended to those who worked alongside the military in Afghanistan or Iraq. We immediately started beating the drum at the National Immigration Forum to improve that program and to expedite processing for two reasons. Number one, lives are on the line. But number two, that we believed that military veterans who had served in Afghanistan since we'd been in the country for two decades, they would be immediately mobilized, not just around the evacuation, but then around resettlement. And as we saw last summer, I think it was just a heroic effort by uh, military veterans to get people out and get them resettled. You know, I've talked to a number of folks who they see themselves as conservative voters. And, you know, they've told me, you know, I did not realize how screwed up our nation's immigration system is. We need to improve the system, whether it's for, you know, their Afghan allies or for anybody else. Uh, so I think politically, the Biden administration kind of missed an opportunity there to, you know, expand the understanding of the system at large. Now, with Ukraine, the Biden administration seems to have kind of learned that lesson, and they have acted relatively quickly to open up pathways for Ukrainians to get to the U.S. They have used, by and large, a similar program, humanitarian parole, which grants people typically up to about two years of temporary work status and temporary legal status here in the U.S., for Afghans uh, who are granted humanitarian parole, many of them had to pay up to $575 a person in seeking that protection. The government is scrapping those requirements for Ukrainians uh, uh, in terms of those, those fees. So that's just one example of kind of, you know, how the Biden administration is treating Ukrainians differently than Afghans. And I'm not saying that Ukrainians should be charged $575 to seek humanitarian parole, but my point here is that Afghans should not have been charged that money either. And, and, and why would you be charging Afghans who uh, helped us in the, in the first place? I think it was, um, again, you know, the White House has been managing immigration and it's from such a defensive posture. Uh, and they saw the evacuation of Afghan allies as an immigration issue, not a protection of our allies issue. But this also goes back to the president's perspective on the Vietnam War. He was on the record after the, after the fall of Saigon that the U.S. had no responsibility to protect 
offer protection to the Vietnamese who fought alongside our forces back then. So this was something that was, you know, it was part of the Biden kind of mindset going to Afghanistan and it played out in, you know, just an awful way for, you know, many folks who are still remain stranded in Afghanistan. The Afghans fought with us and they, they risked their lives for us. Uh, the Ukrainians are are being attacked by <laughs> by Russia, and I think we should be doing everything we can for them. It just seems like we're the United States of America, and we're aren't we supposed to stand for for people who have fought with us and and also for refugees? Aren't we? Isn't the Statue of Liberty about all that? Am I wrong? Uh, you are correct, and an even bigger issue here is that. Yeah, so so much of the conversation, for example, around Afghans who are resettling in the U.S. and are going through the process is vetting, right? So let's make sure they're going through all the security checks and making sure that we're letting not letting in any terrorists. Um, so that way, you know, what that means is that Afghan applicants must provide proof of individualized targeted violence against them by the Taliban, which is a fairly high burden of proof for a person who had to run out of the country practically mm-hmm. on a moment's notice. There's no such burden of proof for Ukrainians. They don't have to submit that evidence. So my point here is that this drives a much bigger issue that then is realized in the tragedies that we saw in Buffalo or in El Paso a couple of years back. Because by Democrats and by the Biden administration to allow kind of the American public to see Afghans differently from Ukrainians, it creates the space for the far right to keep planting these seeds of, yeah, they're letting in somebody we can't trust. You know, they may be a security threat. They're here to replace us. They're here to do harm. That, I think, then it facilitates this weaponization of migration that, you know, again, kind of results in the most tragic uh, actions and, and deaths, but it also just results in uh, the American public being deeply confused of, okay, why do we need an immigration system? So if you were, um, if, if they were just saying, well, uh, Ali Narani gets to, to run our immigration system, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I became president, for example, that might happen. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, I can't have both high likelihood of both things happening then. Uh, not high. (laughs) I admit that both happening, (laughs) (laughs) even smaller than either happening. Uh, 0.003 times 0.003, percent. Anyway, so, uh, what would you do? How would you, what would you, what would you do to, and let's say uh, you have to conform to some political reality. Some, <laughs> okay. Some uh, political reality. Okay. Some political reality that uh, you were so convincing as you went around the country, people going, "Oh, I see." But anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, what would our system look like? So, you know, the 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 quick version, right? And then I'll get into a little more detail. Is in essence what you were a part of back in 2013, right? And that bill in 2013, the bones of it remain the same, right, in terms of policy formulation. And that was a path to citizenship. Right. Legalization and path to citizenship for the undocumented, Mm -hmm. meeting certain criteria, paying a fine, et cetera, et cetera. Development and implementation of an enforcement system 
at the border and in the interior that prioritizes public safety threats, treats people compassionately, but sends a very clear message that laws will be enforced. And then third is to create a legal immigration system that meets in a dynamic fashion the needs of our economy and our society. And what that means is that, for example, as, and this was the 2013 bill, you know, as unemployment goes down in the construction sector and there's clearly a labor shortage, you increase immigration for that sector. As unemployment goes up in the construction sector, then you decrease those visas. Right now, our immigration system is very static. It's nearly impossible to make those kinds of changes outside of one or two programs. So that, the basic bones of it remain the same from 2013. But the political context that we're facing today is admittedly very different. So let's talk. About, go back to the border. At the border, what the administration should do is three things. One is to surge personnel to the border so that there is personnel from Customs and Border Protection and U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services to process people as they are appearing to ask for asylum. And then second, to make sure that that processing can happen in an expedited and fair way. So at the end of May, the Biden administration is going to be putting into effect a new asylum rule that will allow a U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services officer to adjudicate an asylum claim. So that means that if I'm presenting and asking for asylum, I can prove that I have a credible fear of persecution for race, religion, gender, political affiliation, social or social group. Uh, I then present evidence over, you know, and I have like, let's say four weeks to go through that process. Then that officer can say, okay, you're allowed, you know, you're, you're eligible for asylum. So that eliminates a step. And no, actually that eliminates ever having to kind of put the person into the immigration courts because the citizenship and immigration services officer can adjudicate the case all the way to granting asylum. If oh, the, I see. Yeah. If the asylum officer says, no, you're not eligible, then the case is kicked over into the immigration courts. And then the person is you know, detained and put into proceedings. Well, and- what's the backlog? I mean, because it seems to me that we just, we, we have an enormous backlog, right? We have an enormous backlog. It's, I believe last time I saw the number over 2 million cases. And that backlog impacts people who are applying for asylum, people who are applying for whose legal uh, immigration visas are in the system for one reason or another. It creates such an enormous strain on the system that some people are stranded, like in the Philippines, for 20 years because of the backlog. Others are you know, living in kind of the state of limbo in the United States for a number of years. And there have to be ways to streamline these processes and then move decisions to other place, other points in the system. That just seems, uh, how did we let that happen? How do you get uh, that long a backlog and not, uh, how, how, <laughs> how long did it take to, to get yeah. there? Uh, it's been years in the making and it's, a, I think, a res- net result of trying to cram everything into one system. That is also, it's not a system that's resourced to the level it's, that's needed. There, there need to be two or three times as many immigration judges as there are now. Uh, instead, the judges that are on the job now, they've got massive caseloads. They wish they had their, the time to do their jobs better. The judges and lawyers for these right. people. Right. And I've heard of situations where kids just have to go before judges themselves. 
Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I've, you know, I have to, to say that the immigration bar across the country, much less on the border, is just doing heroic work because, you know, they are fighting in so many cases for immigrants who don't have resources, who are not even understanding kind of the, 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 the language that's being used in these cases. Um, but, you know, the decisions coming out of these cases have real life implications. Yeah, but uh, they should have gone into, you know, uh, estate taxes, that kind of thing. Those lawyers. <laughs> they must yeah, not be very smart. Was, we, we can question their career decisions, certainly. Yeah. Okay. Well, so that's... That's one of the things that needs to be done at the border in terms of just improving the asylum system. Yeah. This has just been a problem that seems to get bigger and bigger as, as we go and that we just don't address it. And we have a Democrat, Democratic administration, and they seem to be on the defense, I guess. Again, kind of what the far right is doing around, you're trying to convince the, the public that they are being replaced by immigrants and people of color. You know, there are so many Americans out there who see themselves as conservative, you know, see themselves as Republicans, but really understand the value of having, you know, a diverse society. So the Biden, you know, the president should be speaking to those people directly and saying, you know what, what the Republican Party is selling you is not only terrible for the people who are being killed as a result, as we saw in Buffalo or El Paso, but it's also bad for you your and your families, much less where we want to go as a country. And I, I, I think there is an opportunity to grab the moral upper hand at this moment in the debate. It is, how do we show examples? How, how should we do this? How do we communicate the value of immigrants in our communities? I think a lot of that comes down to creating the opportunities for folks who are not immigrants to sit alongside somebody, whether it's a dreamer or a farm worker, just a small business owner, and kind of share their story in a public space. At the National Immigration Forum, when I was there, one of the most successful campaigns that we ran, uh, just in terms of a digital campaign, was a really simple interview between you know, a pastor and a dreamer in their congregation. Or a police chief and, you know, kind of a, a junior police officer who was a dreamer. Uh, and what happened is that, you know, people as they're watching those conversations, they saw themselves in the pastor or the police chief. And therefore, they listened to the immigrant in a very, very different way. So that's one strategy. Another strategy uh, has been to create in groups where people are invited to think about immigration in a different way, but not necessarily asked to change who they are, not asked to change their identity as a Republican, as a person of faith, as a conservative, but really invited us to sit with people who are of their community and discuss what it means to welcome the stranger. And there are just so many efforts like that across the country that I think we need to, to, to really kind of make those a bigger part of the, the, con the national conversation than the latest, you know, knuckleheadedness coming from Fox News. Uh, in their knuckleheadedness, you know, they, they sometimes like Tucker will go like, well, why do why are we supposed to hate Putin as he tried to snuff out Christianity? No. And I'm thinking like. 
Well, wait a minute. Now, Christianity, I'm Jewish, but as I understand it, uh, Jesus talked a lot about <laughs> welcoming the stranger and feeding the hungry. You know, I didn't, uh, I'm, again, I'm Jewish, and so I'm a little ignorant. I don't hear that from the Fox hosts who are so, uh, the war on Christmas and I'm, I'm Jewish, but Christmas has Christ in it, right? I mean, that's that's who they're referring to, right? It's, it seems to be a, a core part of that that term. So another another piece is, uh, you know, there have been communities of evangelical women who have traveled to Oaxaca, who have traveled to El Paso and Ciudad Juarez, and sat and listened to mothers. You know, they have read the testimonies from unaccompanied children and what they have gone through as part of the immigration system here in the United States. And what happens on the other side of that is that uh, women are, again, kind of sitting uh, with each other and asking the question of, okay, what can they do to welcome the stranger uh, according to their faith? But just as importantly, what does the federal government, what does our immigration system need to do? And that's a long play, right? And it's, a, it's, a, it's hard to take that to scale. But yeah, yeah. And, and how many, uh, who are these evangelicals who do that and go down there? I mean, it, it doesn't seem like that is something that most viewers of Fox News say, sign me up for that. Well, there's a big difference between, say, a Fox News and uh, Christianity today. One of the things that I think is would be really important is yeah. that instead of right uh, is really trying to kind of understand what are the media that folks are going to who are conservative that are answering questions as opposed to you know providing hard edged political talking points, which is what Fox News does. So this particular strategy is called um, We Welcome. It's really grown alongside of another campaign or effort called Women of Welcome. So it's, you know, 130,000 women who are learning more about, again, kind of what it means to welcome the stranger. But I would say this is the other thing about it, Al, is that for those of us who kind of see ourselves as kind of on the left, we also have to understand the courage that it takes to change your mind. And mm -hmm. what I've seen so many times mm -hmm. is that folks who... They know there's something wrong the way that their families or their communities or their news sources are talking about immigration, and they want to think about it differently, but they don't feel like they're being invited into a different conversation. So one of the things that I have left kind of my last 14 years of the forum with is this sense of a need for us to invite people to think about immigration or any of these other issues differently, but then honor and respect the courage that it takes to change your mind. Because what it means is that for so many of these women or men or children, when they change their mind, they run the risk of losing their relationships with their own family members or their own friends. And that's, you know, we've all gone through that in one way or another. And I, I think that these days we, we forget what that, what that takes. Ali, I, I, I know you and I know how passionate you feel about that. That comes through so much in your book, uh, Crossing Borders, which came out in March, and I would recommend it for anyone who's interested in immigration, especially from Central America. Also, the European reaction to uh, the Syrian immigration. I just want to thank you on behalf of my listeners. Uh, uh, this, is, this is your life's work. I'd like to think I'm not, I'm not going to die tomorrow. Um, so 
you know, I've got well, I meant you're, uh, until now. <laughs> until now. Fair enough. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Yes. Yeah. I'm, gl- well, I'm sorry you. you took it that way. <laughs> uh, I certainly didn't mean I gotta I gotta watch how I say things. <laughs> well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.